This is where I was doing the war. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. That's where I moved in in 1974, so that's got to be 40 years ago. Um, then I met Art, and he moved in. Then when I was doing the war, it was here, uh, but it was one long undifferentiated hmm. space. Um, and that's where I had my press, and yeah. I was doing a magazine. Um, then, when I got pregnant with my first kid, um, I had to make a choice between the press and the baby, so I chose the baby, because <laughs> uh, it's not the greatest environment sure. for the baby to be like crawling around yeah. on the press room floor. So then I got rid of the press, and I moved the office downstairs. So same address, yeah. but and I had that for like twenty something years, and then now the kids have left the house. I'm moving the <laughs> office back. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm filling the empty nest with basically yeah. where I was at. So. I I um you know I spoke I spoke to Art uh, a couple months months right. back before yeah. the tour, yeah. and um, I I I'd, I'd spoken to him in, in that space before, but it's it's very similar. Um, from the standpoint of it sort of being in a like a living library that you're in right now <laughs> with the books everywhere we're crawling under yeah. the weight of and it's going to get worse because I also um, you know was a New Yorker I also have an overcrowded office um, I don't know if you saw the cover of the New Yorker last week by Ivan Brignani. Mm, mm-hmm. Like upstairs yeah. is this nice yeah, yeah. space. Downstairs yeah. is a space full of what he calls impedimenta. Um, and whether it's the records or the CDs or the books or the paper goods mm-hmm. or whatever, I have a ton of that. And we're moving into the Freedom Tower. Okay. For my Times Square locations, I have to like, some house for whales is so yeah um but anyway yeah. well it's a struggle I, I i i had go through the same thing every time i move which is more often than i would like i just moved a few months back and i i, I pared it down um it's a good discipline yeah. yeah it was the C- the cds finally went that was the that was the big thing this mm-hmm. time um i haven't been able to get haven't been able to get rid of the books and i don't I know, you know, I, I know, I, I know. Art. I spoke to Art about this, and and I get the feeling that that you know, he, he at least to some degree, he uses them as a reference. So he goes, you know, he 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 does use the books a bit. Yes, absolutely, and we do too. Yeah, you know, like when even when we're publishing new books, we need to mm. have well previous editions, but also other like classic children's books. It is our, you know, the grounds that we stand yeah. on. So, yeah. Um, and I'm still, I still need to uh, make dummies and see the physical object. Mm. I don't understand it until I hold something in my hand. You know, there's something about clicking down on a mouse. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't have the same yeah. um, effect on yeah. me. Weight, yeah, I yeah. like physical weight. And the, um, you know the the feeling of the mm-hmm. paper, the weight of it, the turning of the page. And well, we were speaking about this before. We were talking about just the sound, the sound of of, of pages turning. Yes, you know you can't. Yeah. That's something that you can't really recreate with a click. And, and in some way, what I like is, in terms of you know, still making books, mm-hmm. even though for 
educational purposes, marketing purposes. We have our books offered as e-books. I mean, we're not anti-technology. Sure. We're not complete luddites. <laughs> Close to it, but not completely. <laughs> but what I really like of a, as a book is the final deadline. You know, when mm. we send it to the printer, mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. I mean, until the next edition, you can, where you, if you have made a mistake, then you can correct. Yeah. Um, but there's a moment where like it stops so you work really hard and and then there's a point where like you make an object mm. and that's great because that's something I see with um, writers now who are wedded to the word processor mm. and if you don't have a deadline you can always like you know rewrite the sentence and change that chapter and so on so and there's a sense of of accomplishment that you get and this was when you know when i first moved to new york um all of the writing i I was always trying to get in the magazine you know Mm -hmm. and and it was hard it was hard to make that transition to uh sort of accepting that you know being on the web was you know as as good in a lot of cases as as being in the magazine Mm -hmm. but but the Actually, getting, actually being able to go to, went back when they had you know magazine shops in New York. Actually, being able to go to one and and pull one off the shelf and look at it and see see your byline. I know to see your book out yeah. in the world or your uh, out on a magazine. I mean, things that because on the web, I guess it's also not hierarchical. So mm. that whether it's on your blog with your byline or whether it's in the New York Times with mm-hmm. your byline, like it doesn't have the same weight. Whereas yeah. out in the real world, if it's in a shop, it's like unless you've placed it there long enough to take a photo or trick yourself, um, yeah. it means that it exists even when you're not looking. You know, which is nice. Yeah. What, what what I what, what was funny to me about um, you know having having to bring out the uh, the, the Hansel and Gretel book was um, it, just this uh, I, this idea of, of 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 show and tell you know it's like oh he has to because you were running a, a bit late from the office and and you said oh he has to he has to look at this book you have to show him this book and it's yeah because you know one of the things that Yehu, um who you met has done is trying to show... It's so big. I'm narrating, by the way, but it's so big that it's hard to do with one hand. (laughs) On the internet, try to show this beautiful edition. But it's very difficult because you don't have the transparency effect. Mm -hmm. Everything is flattened. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a third dimension. Um, And it doesn't have the sense of... um, how special something mm. is that you have here of the print by Lorenzo Mattodi. It's all reduced. Here it's a special edition of the book with the die cut. Mm-hmm. As a smaller edition of the book, for example, has a fake facsimile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you take a photo of either, you don't see the difference in size, you don't see the difference between a fake and a real die mm-hmm. cut you know, like um, a shadow created, one of the a very important part of the design of this cover was done by uh, Johnson Be- Bennett um, and he's the one who suggested to do this kind of spot UV mm. over the entire cover and back cover which normally we do in tiny little spots mm-hmm. um, that process 
But you can't quite show this. You can't show the reflections the way it catches the sure. light because it is a p- itself. Yeah. It's in black and white, of course, but it's also a play of light and shadow itself on the cover and back cover of the book. So all those things. And, and we, you know, tried various paper for this book, um, but we ended up going with a non-glossy paper, which is um, unusual and actually created... It was really hard to print it and to hmm. print it well, so we had to do fifth color uh, inks and just basically like layer and layer so much ink because we were going on a paper that wasn't slick, yeah. So that uh, absorbs the ink, um, but that's not things that you can quite catch in a description. It's nothing you can show in a photo, but it's really like. I wanted to make sure that you held it in your hand. Mm. And even when you talked about it, you rubbed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, on, on one of the books that we did before, we had done uh, an emboss or a deboss. So we'd done like um, a rough edge, like all of those processes that you can make with a real book. Landon Marcus was a historian of children's books. Um, was pointing out that that's what you lose when it's translated to digital. Mm-hmm. Like, it, especially like kids' books, um, a lot of the perception that the child has, the first thing that the kids will do is chew on it um, <laughs> on their board book. But, you know, when you describe a kid book or when you think about it, you think about tiny little books, gigantic yeah. books, I mean, the different sizes. Yeah. Once it's digital, it's the size of your screen, and you don't have that scalable uh, sense of, like, a very big book or thick book, um, as well as that um, all of the dimensions of the uh, all the other senses, and, and and one of the things that immediately draws children's t- children to children's books um, are, are are these are these clever things that they're doing with the the you know the printing. So there's the hungry caterpillar and exactly, yeah. Pat the bunny and all Pat these other the things, bunny. and that's yeah. you know and and when you're a, a child, that's the first thing that that you notice. And it's really important because um, a psychologist, Dr. Tsvirsky, was a professor of um, psychology at Columbia and at Stanford. She was a consultant when I was first launching the two Mm -hmm. books. And what she was explaining to me is that a young child perceives the world in a multimodal way. Mm. So she is, if you said to that to your daughter, um, oh, you know what? Um, come to the kitchen and uh, have some cookies. Um, and she's running around, and she, you know, burst into the kitchen. And I did this when my kids were little, like four or five years old. But I would say it in French because I spoke French to my mm-hmm. kids, and their friends understood, and they never even noticed that I was mm-hmm. speaking a different language because. They understand the content of yeah. what I'm saying from the context, from the fact that they're hungry, that it smells yeah. like cookies baking in the oven. The tones of your voice. The, the tone of my yeah. voice, the intonation, the fact that I'm standing in the doorway, the fact that my kid is running. And then don't even realize that they are not isolating the meaning of the mm. words, but it's, it's all in a big context of... Um, their sense of vision, their hearing, and uh, their stomach. 
But when you're asking the kid to go to school and learn to read, if it's just reduced to a written version of the text, you're abstracting all mm. of the other dimension to just the semantic content of the words. Mm -hmm. So you don't have the intonation anymore, yeah. and you don't have the timbre of my voice or the loudness, the decibel level, or uh, whether I am being nice or mm. whether I'm scolding. Um, because, of course, um, in in real speech, you have a world of difference between, well, that's so nice, and, well, that's nice. Yes. I mean, it's the same words, but they mean something completely different, even opposite of each other. One is sarcastic and the other one welcoming. Whereas in comics, when you're seeing the character saying, like, that's nice, mm. and he has a big smile on his face and his arm around his little sister, you realize, even if you're not understanding the words, that those are welcoming words. And if he's standing there and, like, looking really angry, um, you understand the sarcastic and scolding yeah. content. So you are given a lot of multimodal clues mm -hmm. in a comics by the facts by the visual narrative by the fact that it's integrated it's not just a word but the words are one of the element and what she was saying dr svisky is that everything that the kid has learned up till the age of six she has figured it out by trial and error mm -hmm. like whether it's pouring water in this glass um or turning the pages of the book um, and trying to chew on it when they were a baby or, um, you know, how to share an apple, all of this stuff. Mm. They can do it wrong, they can do it right, but they learn from experience. Learning to read is a system that's rigid and you can't learn it by trial and error. Yeah. You can't try to read right to left and left to right, at least in our... And there's no... There, there, there's no tangible connection between the symbol on the page and what it actually represents, right? right? Yeah, we're not Chinese characters. Yeah. It's not ideograms. Yeah. So in a way, the, the comics, to integrate them with a visual narrative, which kids don't need to learn. Like, hmm. no teacher has ever had to sit in front of a classroom and say, okay, I'm going to show you how to look for Waldo. Mm -hmm. Kids intuitively know how to read pictures. Yeah. It's uh, um, not necessarily illustration, but cartoons. Uh, go to the core of, our, of our, because we reduce everything we see to cartoon representation. Like if you think about your girlfriend, mm -hmm. it's going to be a cartoon of your girlfriend. It's not a <laughs> photographic representation. Yeah. I, mean, I don't mean that about your girlfriend. <laughs> okay, let's say uh, President Obama. Sure. But it's you, outlines and shapes and it's it's salient features. Mm -hmm. So it's not what. Uh, Obama was wearing uh, yeah. the last time you saw a photograph of him. Um, it's an abstract idea. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I should um, not go off on the topic of comics in general because it's just too vast. But well, sure. I mean, this, this, this is interesting too, though. Um, you know, I understand what you're saying about... Uh, about Waldo, but there's there, there's another level on top of that when when we're talking about actually perceiving a narrative through images, and and that's also intuitive. Well, see, that's what we try to do when we do the tune books mm -hmm. is um, to 
pay a lot of attention to the visual flow. So we'll ask um, the author to work out, first of all, the gist of the story, because the reason to do books is because you have a good story to tell. And then to have a visual approach and then to develop it as a flow of the book so that, you know, stories, it's like music, like you you want, if you want a melody, mm-hmm. you want to establish it, you want to play with it, you want to wrap things up, you want a beginning, a middle and an end and, and you want, um, so we work on the structural aspect as well as on the logistics of it. And often people think like, Oh, stuff for kids, that's easy. Mm. Or stuff, uh, and they think comics, that's easy because uh, kids like comics, so it's going to be fun. Well, I'm well pleased to tell you, and I'm sure you know, that comics are not easy. They actually, it's more like um, poetry rather than prose. Mm. It's actually harder. Yeah. Um, To express as much with as few... Yes, Words you have and, you have yeah. fewer things. Everything has meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, the size of the lettering has meaning. Um, the shape of the letters has meaning, um, and it's a wonderful tool. But you want everything to work together. And when you're doing stuff for kids, you also can't be like tongue-in-cheek and or oh, let the reader fill in the blanks. Mm. You want to be very clear in your communication and it tolerates less outside references. You can't just do like an Eisner-esque panel yeah. and figure out that your readers will know. Yeah, well, there, there's there's definitely been a, a push in, in popular children's culture over the past, you know, however many decades to, um, to make the movie that appeals to the parents at the same time as the children, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's something to be said for that, right? There's something to be said for at least... Um, you know, if the parents are dragging the children to to the movie, mm-hmm. that they're that they're getting something out of it out of it as well. Is there something? Yeah, we try not to do that in the sense that, um, yes, in some ways, I understand for the movies, which mm-hmm. has to be a mass audience, but the book is, especially the books that we're making, is something where we want the kid to be able to read on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we're making books for kids who are learning to read, and so now we're making books for like 8 to 12 years old, um, we don't especially want to reference television or outside media. We just want, for example, when we publish Hansel and Gretel, mm-hmm. um, Neil Gaiman wasn't doing like the parody version of Hansel and Gretel. He was going back to what he remembered from when he was four or five Mm. years old and hearing the story. He heard it on the radio for Mm -hmm. the first time and it terrified (laughs) him. And same thing happened with Lorenzo Mattotti, with the artist. He remembered it, you know, with absolute terror in his heart. Mm. The idea of being abandoned by your parents in the forest, of being um, threatened to be eaten, Eaten. (laughs) um, to be turned into food. Neil says that uh, that's the first time he realized that his body was flesh, Mm. the same as meat, and Mm -hmm. that he could be food for somebody else. Yeah, for grown-ups. And that that was just, you know, a revelation for him, changed his sense of um, who he was. So he wanted to get back to the source of of those deep truths mm. um, and not 
uh, do anything other than to put it in a book where it can actually be perceived and then gone back to and understood and mastered. Hmm. Because those fears, you can't pretend that they're not there. They exist yeah. when you grow up. Um, as Sendak was saying to Art when he was doing a, a strip with Sendak is, you know, kids know things that sometimes they are afraid to tell grown-ups hmm. about because grown-ups would be scared. <laughs> um, and it's not a matter of just ignoring this and to pretend that, like, uh, everything exists in a disnified yeah. world where everybody is nice and smart and it has a good ending, but it's actually a book can give a kid um, a map of the world hmm. with which they can construct their own understanding. Yeah, because this is an interesting map that we're offering up here, the, the map that offers the possibility that you you, you can be eaten <laughs> by someone. Well, I mean, you know, th- I distinctly remember when um, my son was young and there was a moment where he actually was so disturbed by this realization that he wanted to be vegetarian. It didn't last mm. b- uh, past a year, but I mean, for almost a whole year, the idea of eating other animals hmm. was really difficult, yeah. you know, to to understand and to conceive. And kids are very deep thinker. You know, they have to understand things. They don't appropriate somebody else's understanding mm-hmm. and make it. You know, so that's a way. To yeah, they can't tune out the noise. No, and they have to like come up with their own primary understanding. So that's why we're trying to not focus so much. With a tongue in che- on the tongue in cheek approach of like, hey kids, you know what I mean? Ha ha ha. As much as, you know, the, for example, when we do books about um, Greek mythology, mm-hmm. it's all stories that resonate. And there is a kind of filtering effect of stories that have survived for millennia. Well, that's uh, that's one of the other things that you're gaining here when you're not putting it in a specific time and place. When you're getting rid of the pop culture references, is mm-hmm. the ability for you know these books uh, potentially the, the you know the, these books becoming beloved books for this generation and them passing it on to their kids because there's nothing there's no hurdle to get over because they don't you know they don't know who Justin age. Bieber is. Yeah, <laughs> I think you know I I was well. Um, Groomed because I've been at the New Yorker for more than mm-hmm. 20 years. And to some extent, that's what we try to do as a beat at the New Yorker of capturing the deep undercurrents of things. So to be totally with it in terms of whatever trance is mm-hmm. happening, but not to report it on a micro level where mm. you stay at the surface and you bob with the waves, but to more try to figure out how it connects mm-hmm. to meaningful um, tendencies and... and um, again, understandings and feelings so that you can read an old issue of The New Yorker, uh, good articles that's like, you know, 12, 15 years old, that's still relevant because of the points that it makes. Similarly, with a kid's book, we also go for the long haul Mm. because your readers, sometimes they... We now have sub-series, so we do the Benny and Penny books, and we've published five mm-hmm. books in the series. So we have kids that have grown up with the Benny <laughs> and Penny books, or with the Silly Lily books, or with the Benjamin Bear books. 
Um, but we also, when you publish for children, you have new readers every year mm-hmm. <laughs> that are coming to that age group. So yes, um, when we launched the Toon Graphics, um, I have the great p- pleasure of publishing a strip I was reading when I was a kid, which is uh, Philemon books. Mm. And that was my point of entry. That was the first comics I read, and I love them. And the work is... So it takes place nominally uh, in a French farm in the 60s, because he was doing that in the late 60s, early 70s, which you would think at first glance, it's never been published in the U.S. at first, so that would be something that would be alien Mm -hmm. to an American kid in the 21st century. But all it has is a kid and his donkey, (laughs) and he falls down a well, and he's in some magical world, which echoes... Alice in Wonderland sure. and Robinson Crusoe and, yeah. and Narnia and um, those are the, all those books um, fuels the imagination of current readers of me when I was a mm-hmm. kid across cultures um, the author Fred his mother is from a family of Greek immigrants mm-hmm. um, so he's folding in some Greek mythology as well um, his character is lost in the labyrinth. Um, is in an arena. This is. Um, I, I was. I was doing a little little reading on on this book on the way here, and I, I can't remember. It might have been you that said it. Might have been Neil Neil that said it. But it, it was something that hadn't even occurred to me until I read it. That there are children now who are unfamiliar with the story of, of Hansel and Gretel, which surprised me because it seems like you know when I grew up, it was certainly around. Is it? Has there been uh, that big of a change? Well, no, I think in some ways it's because of what you were talking about, of like they may have seen the Hansel and Gretel movie Mm -hmm. adaptation that came out, like, you know, two or three years ago, is that there's a tendency to jump the gun and they often will have to seize a little green riding hood long before they even Mm. had a chance to read the original Mm -hmm. little red riding hood so that so much of our culture is um, ironic and parodic Mm -hmm. Um, that's part of the reason why we are interested in telling tales Mm. you know like in the tales that will stay uh, rather than just making a stylistic um, ironic um, reference to something that uh, kids may or may not have read Kids can, at some point I was in a school in Brooklyn and I was reading an early version of the Fred, no, of Theseus actually, of Theseus. Um, And there was, of course, in the story of Theseus, big plot point has to do with the labyrinth Mm -hmm. and the Minotaur. And I was asking like, you know, do you kids, this was like, fourth graders to your kids you know, who knows what the labyrinth is so most kids knew what it was and when I asked where they got it from they got it from a video game hmm. <laughs> forget the name of the video game but mm-hmm. that was the primary reference yeah. so they get those things referenced now in um, you know this a very popular series um, that um 
that references Greek mythology, mm-hmm. there's a lot of TV shows, there are movies, and so on and so forth. It doesn't obviate the need. I think it actually makes it even more urgent to give a good classic form mm-hmm. of the story. And a lot of that, um, particularly in the case of a story like Hansel and Gretel, means um, keeping it dark and, and keeping it scary. I mean, that's that's something that gets stripped away a lot. Um, yes. It's true that like there's a tendency for uh, people who do, especially people who have a mandate of like mass media, trying mm-hmm. to reach as many people, to be afraid of the censors in Texas or mm-hmm. the parents in um, Illinois or whatever, that, the, that somebody is going to object to sure. something at some point, yeah. especially when you're dealing with kids. That, yeah. Um, but I feel like, you know, the country is big enough, the culture is big enough that not everybody has to try to be reaching for a lower common denominator. Mm-hmm. And we are a micro-publisher. <laughs> we don't, you know, we don't have um, um, a need to try to be as wide as possible. I think we have a, a desire and a need to be as good as mm-hmm. possible. And... I think it's true of every author that I work with, whether it's uh, writers like Neil Gaiman or the artists like Matodi or any of the cartoonists that I work with, that they all want to do something that they would want to read themselves, mm-hmm. you know, either when they were 10 years old or now even. And a lot of our books of the, uh, the Fred is something that you could, absolutely enjoy as an adult it's mm-hmm. not just for kids um, it doesn't have we're, we're careful about um, senseless violence violence for the sake of violence because mm-hmm. um, I actually personally don't enjoy it um, <laughs> so you know so it's, and I think it's sometimes used as a replacement for good storytelling when when, uh, when we we talk about pushback when you know beyond subject matter the the medium itself comes into that conversation as well and i'm wondering you know over since 2008 since you launched this have you seen a a very clear shift in terms of um young education uh young uh, educators approach to to teaching comics yeah um when we before i launched as um a little publishing house mm-hmm. myself. I actually um, did a raw junior division in 1998, mm-hmm. so 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that I wanted to do, I did with HarperCollins, I did the little lit books that were anthology. And they were kind of a raw for kids, and mm-hmm. I thought that I could do with uh, kids' comics what I had done with raw, which is to put first together anthologies of material and then I would do like a lot of individual books um, because I did that was where I did like Jerry Moriarty books and Charles Burns and Gary Panther and so on and so forth but an anthology is a good way to make a point about the diversity of approaches but it was difficult um, to create for categories that didn't exist in a bookstore because in the bookstore or in the libraries there was no such thing as kids comics mm-hmm. and didn't fit with children's books because children's books didn't really t- uh, allow for comics they wanted their text and their pictures to be separated that was the rules of the industry at the time 
and um, with a budding s- a graphic novel section, they weren't necessarily that appropriate for mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being in Forbidden Planet with my young son, and he was like maybe 10 or 12 years old at the time. Um, and he put... Uh, and we were at Forbidden Planet together because he was getting his fix of comics. But I remember him putting his hand over my eyes because he was <laughs> embarrassed, <laughs> you know, that his mom would have to see those girls like with big tits tied yeah. to the mast um, of the boat. But, you know, it's really sweet of him. Like I felt like saying, like, <laughs> you know, honey, I've been there before. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I can take it. Um, but it wasn't a, a terribly kid-friendly environment mm. um, the independent comic stores at yeah. the time so we we, d- we clearly were um, we, we had a hard time um, doing things that fit either between c- children's books or between comics and that's exactly what we were trying to do so after that, when I, I I wanted to do the tune books from the beginning, mm-hmm. even after the little lit, I went to every publisher in mm. town because I have enough connections at this point. I've been in publishing for a long time. Yeah, and it's so and it's I, easier to work with somebody than it is to have well, to launch. Well, I mean, for distribution, it's actually yeah. um, a good idea. And I'd done raw anthology or one shots with Pantheon and with Penguin. So um, Pantheon had been bought by Random House. I had connection with HarperCollins mm-hmm. since I'd done the little bit with HarperCollins. I went to Penguin. I went to Art Mifflin. I went to Harcourt Brace. I mean, every single publisher. I spent two years like taking my show and tell mm-hmm. uh, to Scholastic taking my show and tell to every publisher and saying like no you should do kids comics it's, yeah. it's I remember having a conversation maybe in 204 205 with Heidi McDonald mm. and she said um, you know that's astonishing you're right like it's a big business in every country in the world including in France and Spain and Italy and Japan and Korea um, etc but it's true that it doesn't yeah. exist the closest we would in have would US. be like a Tintin translation here yeah and that <laughs> doesn't do well compared to yeah. like all those French comics yeah. I sold the world over in millions of copies mm-hmm. except in the US and Heidi was saying like you know you're right it's actually kind of strange but it's of course because of the congressional hearings mm. and the comics um, code yes yeah, the yeah. innocent and comics code they yeah. totally killed um, I mean devastated the industry it just hasn't been anything good um, not much anyway so at that point um, I st- I'm, I'm stubborn and I still <laughs> wanted it to happen because I just feel like there is no real future for comics if kids don't grow up reading mm. them because it's nice that in a, at that moment which is about 10 years ago that they're getting into museums and they're getting into libraries and they're getting into stores under the guise of graphic novels that's great that's certainly a part mm-hmm. of what we wanted to accomplish when we did Raw but that's short-sighted if it's just this generation and kids are not growing up with it and you are losing out like for it being a vital medium Mm -hmm. in um in the next century uh and there's no reason for it because there should be enough bona fides for comics to overcome the prejudices Mm. um and so 
at the, at the time of Roy, it was like comics and not just for kids anymore. Yeah. And now I started saying, but comics are not just for adults yeah. anymore. Yeah. And it was a difficult... They overcorrected a little bit. Well, it's a difficult argument to make with yeah. a cartoonist who is actually like working really hard and sees that like Miles got a Pulitzer and whatever. And, I, you know, is so this conversation that I had with Jeff Smith mm-hmm. um, at the time. And part of what I was showing... Uh, with the tune books and comics for kids was actually Bone yeah. and Jeff's work and I proposed that to Scholastic who because um, Jeff and Vijaya had done Bone uh, on their own yeah. for nearly 10 years cartoon, with, cartoon huge, books, yeah. with cartoon books with huge success but it wasn't marketed for kids hmm. so to Scholastic because I knew somebody who actually was um, the editor of Scholastic News and then I got escalated to the um, uh, CEO Gene Feibel, I proposed the Tune Books in 2004, I think, or five, as level one, two, three, and four, and level four was Bone. Mm. And I talked Jeff into like, let's do it in color. I know you didn't do it for kids, um, but it still would be a great thing for kids. Would would love it. It's perfectly fine. Was was Jeff? Um, was he? defensive about that the idea that this but it wasn't what he was looking yeah. for you know I mean he, he had published himself with Vijayas he had done all of his work the same way we had published mm-hmm. for ourselves um, and to great success I mean I think he was doing like a hundred thousand copies so it was you know it was big yeah. Yeah. it was it was or maybe I'm exaggerating but still it, it was big it was yeah, very it big. Was yeah. big it was big but no it's not something that was a driving need yeah. for him to do a kids edition because it didn't add to the respectability um, I mean what he wanted was to have hardcover collections yeah. so, I mean that's not the direction that he was thinking about and it had been picked up by a couple of editors at Scholastic and proposed to them and it said oh, no, not kids comics hmm. because they had just seen it as a black and white yeah. um books that he was publishing. Anyway, they actually plucked that out of my lineup um, and just said, oh, you know what? We'll do Bone in Color. Yeah. That sounds good. Um, and then that was taken away. So that was, for me, kind of a loss because I didn't have the wedge that yeah. I had then because that was something that was already done. And I was left again with my level one, two, and three, which was the beginning books. And eventually I decided, well, uh, I'll do it myself Mm -hmm. because, and I'm glad that I did because when, um, so I launched in, we put the books together in 2007, the first ones came out in 2008, um, and when I launched it, um, the economy collapsed. The Great Recession is that spring of 2008 mm. and the summer of 2008. So if it had been with a major publishing house, I had a contract even with Penguin for a while or uh, even Candlewick who ended up distributing mm-hmm. us. I had gone to see them. Like, and the CEO of Random House was really very sweet and he had said to me, you know, it's a great idea. It's beautifully implemented. We're just not sure that we can take on um, a new area of publishing. Uh, it's not a good time to launch. Yeah. And I'm lucky that they didn't say yes um, because 
if it had been picked up by a major house, then comes a recession. The last thing they would have picked up mm-hmm. and launched is the first things that they would have yeah. stopped and killed. And I wouldn't have been able to come back afterwards. You've got so many things working against you already that to, yeah. to have that be a failure right out of yeah. the gate would have yeah. been. And it, it, would, it obviously would, you know, whatever we have accomplished has been small and yeah. incremental. It's in part because the first two two, three years, first two years, I think we were distributed with Diamond mm-hmm. and we had terrific people yeah. um, working for us ceaselessly, Jenna Morishima and uh, Don Chableski. But Jenna was fantastic. She was at every convention. Uh, she had been hired by Diamond to do that, to open up kids' comics mm. as books in the trade, in bookstore. And she was at the ALA, at the EBMA, at the IRA, International Reading Association, every single one of those shows, putting together panels, putting me on them, showing the books, like getting us to do lesson mm-hmm. plans, connecting us with teachers. She was unbelievable. She was such. A, she had been actually one of the editors at Scholastic who had said to them, oh, you should do Bone. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just a nice bit of, of synchronicity there, though, or, or I guess, you know, Know, maybe, maybe maybe zeitgeist where it came along at the exact right time that Diamond was also looking to push this on their end because it it, it makes sense because you know the first uh, volume of Mouse is eighty seven the second is ninety two mm-hmm. and it takes a while for um, works of the magnitude of Mouse yeah. of things to actually be made comics can't really be made overnight I mean all, all those graphic novels so 10 years later you start having hmm. you know just serious works being published and meanwhile there's a retrenchment yeah. in the superhero and in, in the independent comics world so at that point there was a feeling that there was a possible niche for comics, graphic novel, whatever you want to call them. Everybody else calls them graphic novels, so I want to call them comics, but I don't think we need the euphemism anymore, but mm-hmm. we're talking about the same medium. These are very and thin novels, if they are novels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're publishing for like seven-year-old yeah. kids. With They're not going to read novels. They're just learning to read. So um, at that moment, it's true that the publishers were trying to like pick up you know, comics, graphic mm-hmm. novels, like certainly Pantheon was continuing, having done Persepolis, having done, um, you know, every big book, but there was also Norton was coming in, Norton Mifflin, like almost every publisher was trying to um, bring out their graphic novel imprint. Yeah. Uh, First Second was starting around that time. And Diamond was trying to like be the go-between between comics publishers, um, and at that moment, that would be like whoever was publishing at that time. Not so much um, the Marvel and DC, but more the independent. Mm-hmm. And not drawn in quarterly, and not for a second because those are, those had distribution in stores, but there were a number of other comics comics. Um, um, that we're trying to get their books in stores mm-hmm. and stores and in libraries. So it worked great for us because um, 
by having been stymied for so long, um, you know, uh, 2008 is 10 years later yeah. for me. Um, well, the other thing you have with the, the, the 10 years, and I, and I know, you, as you said, you're not making these for, for the parents, but, you know, what you do have with a with a, a Neil Gaiman book or, you know, book with, with Art's name on it is, with that 10-year gap, is you have people, th- those people who are reading those books are now having children. And so you've got, and there's a lot mm-hmm. to be said for... No, seeing a name that you know, I That's mean, you're more true. inclined at least yes. to pull it off the shelf yes, of nothing yes, else. Yes, and and it was some things that I wasn't that interested in when there was um, when I was going to see the various publishers. The one thing they picked up on is like, oh, you got big names, you know, because even in Little Lit, like we had Maurice Sandak yeah. and David Starris and Paul Auster and Neil Gaiman and Gian Wilson mm. and um, not quite a roster. Yeah. Oh, spectrum. We, we, we had all the big <laughs> names yeah. everywhere, you know, Jules Pfeiffer and so on. Um, and they tend to do that. They tend to go for um, the names. Sure. Established than, properties. and Yeah. It, it never was like the attraction for us because we wanted the work to be for mm-hmm. uh, the kids could care less, you know, whether it's Jules Pfeiffer or, um, sure. you know, Jules Schmo, it yeah. doesn't really matter. But yes, you're right that this, um, one of the things that works in our favor is that now parents have grown up without the prejudice against comics. Mm-hmm. So you have an entire generation of young parents that are in their 30s and when they were growing up um, you know 10-15 years ago is around the time that comics start being a hip thing start being taught in schools and universities as now programs and it's a medium that they don't have any problem with the idea that comics can be a serious medium just like cinema just like um, you know they can be they, they don't have the same kind of barrier between mm-hmm. popular culture high and low art things like um, you know that we were dealing with in 1978 like a high low show at the Museum of Modern Art where they put Roy Lichtenstein mm-hmm. versus the comics that yeah. he was swiping to do his yeah. thing. <laughs> you know, we passed that yeah. moment and culturally it's true that a lot of people will write blogs, will do reviews, will have radio shows, who are, you know, consuming mm-hmm. and that as the tastemakers are onto comics. So that that they are able like, you know, with this book, it's actually this has been the book by Neil Gaiman, there's been a lot that we've been able to talk about in terms of like, uh, oh, if it's um, because of Houdini, uh, Iru, I get. Yeah, yeah, but you could just leave it outside the door, and I'll bring it in because of the cat. <laughs> He's right there; I can hear him. So, so we've had, um, you know, the 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 basis of support. Um, we still have to explain a lot mm. on what we do. Mm. To, uh, to because when you're talking about um you know, comics being 
because this is going to sound a little harsh, but <laughs> I think I think of the people who support what we do, like the young teacher, as the alpha ones. You mm. know, there's the smart ones, there's the yeah. one who read comics and yeah. whatever. But you can't expect, if they are teachers, if they are librarians, if they are uh, parents themselves, mm-hmm. you can't expect that the schools that the kids will go to sure. be catching up with them it's going to take a while in that milieu because it's a deeply conservative um anything that has to do with kids has by nature to be deeply conservative you don't want them to swing with this fad and that fad and you don't want them to change to start liking like um you know rap music like the days that it's um hitting um because um it, it's one where there has to be some kind of consensus. Yeah. You, 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 you have to expect that there'll be some parents uh, going to the principal and saying, "What is this? My child came home with a comic mm-hmm. book. The teacher gave him a comic book. Yeah. That's outrageous. I sent him to school. I want him to read real books." Yeah. And that they have some answer for this. Yeah. You know that they are able to say, "No, actually." It's uh, a book that's been reviewed in such and such a place. So, so you're actually going to you know these library association meetings, um, meetings of educators, talking to people one on one and explaining to them. We we do panels mm-hmm. like we had. Um, uh, there was one in Washington. We had Dean Haspel was done Mo and Joe mm-hmm. with Michael Kafna and was a teacher. Um, they've heard the part already. You know, they've heard the part about comics can tackle the Shoah, can tackle like serious topics. That's not news anymore. It was news ten years mm-hmm. ago, and they were very happy yeah. because that's frankly in libraries now. The books that the uh, two things draw kids. Libraries are hot. Two things draw kids into libraries one is the uh, internet access Mm -hmm. and the other is comics and those books circulate the all the librarian at this point yeah i mean my you know i i i'm not suggesting that my mom was progressive when it came to things like this but her her philosophy on it was just uh, if he's reading you know Mm -hmm. this if this is something and i became a reader later on but i wasn't that's what got me that's what really got me into i mean it was Maybe it's a little more crass. It was X-Men comics, but, you know, it was... The philosophy is if it's reading, it's reading. As a parent, it doesn't matter. I had to deal with my daughter reading The Babysitter's Club, and I had to, like, just keep my mouth shut. Just, like, you know, for minutes there, I was like, but why is she reading the same book? It's the same book 20 times. Yeah. The same plots and characters and whatever. And then I... I had to realize, no, reading is reading. And ultimately, yes, she is reading something that's repetitive, but that's a mm-hmm. way to get herself used to having a nose in a book yeah. and whatever. I still do think that you one is better off. I've been at, on a number of panels where um, people try to make the case that all comics are great. I don't agree. Mm. I think that good comics are great. You know, like when you're talking about you know, a page by, um, you know, the my brain by Harriman, uh, you're talking about a great work of literature Mm -hmm. and art, Mm -hmm. um, and it's not the same 
not all, not anything and everything yeah. that's done in comics. Especially not is, anything in the the newspaper, the, the yeah, Sunday morning newspaper. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> Kathy, is that a great student? Yeah. Not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of um, mediocrity, like there is in every medium. Mm-hmm. You know, not everything that's written is Tolstoy. Like, yeah. it's just, it's, it's the medium doesn't transform and make something that's... Um, you know, doesn't have literary or artistic quality. Uh, it's not by definition like alchemy, and then it becomes poetry. Mm. And um, no, but but good comics, yes, can be um, on a level. I mean, you know, so last year was Chris Ware's uh, building stories. This year is Richard Maguire's here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fantastic what's being published. <laughs> like it's it's really very rewarding and similarly I think with kids literatures there is a responsibility because if we don't do it you know how are kids going to bridge the gap between the age of four and five you know when you can read to them all of the great works that that you know that's a place where classics still exist in children's literature and how you're going to form the one that will be reading the Chris Way of your future. Mm-hmm. Um, and comics have that ability to be both complex but also on a page. So you can read it the first time and then you can go back to yeah. it. That's what's so... Um, I think that's one of the reasons why um, comics, and especially printed comics, um, are such good training ground I'm sure it was true for you but it certainly was true for me is I reread my comics over and over Mm -hmm. and over again still do (laughs) (laughs) and you don't necessarily do that with a lot of books that you read like you know my daughter didn't reread the babysitter's club like you know she moved on to other things Um, but but comics appeal to that because they're multi-layered. Like, if you look at Mouse, it can be read when you're like, at, at this point, mm. it's read by um, a great number of people yeah. uh, in middle school. Mm. But then you can read it again. Yeah. And then you can read it's it again. It's taught in colleges. And, and it's taught yeah. in colleges. And then you can start discovering all of the layers through which it operates. And you find all of the um, ways in which... You know the story is told, mm-hmm. not of, not all of which you get the first time around, but it's very rich as a medium. And the fact that that rich medium is in a book whose pages don't change; they don't need to be plugged in, and that's the other thing that's nice in terms of not being a digital medium is that they're fossilized in this printed form mm-hmm. and every time you go back to it the same panel is on the same part of the same page you know it yeah and, and 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 just and th- th- this is a case certainly where where the object is important i mean objects are so important to kids you know the things you remember the things that were in your mm-hmm. childhood bedroom for for the rest of your life yeah proust, proust wrote about this mm. and it, and you remember it in a physical way yeah. you know it's it's an intellectual like the smell of the taste of the metal. <laughs> this is your metal. <laughs> yeah, in some ways that you know that's yeah. that's very hardening to me because I uh, live and work and breathe in publishing, and mm-hmm. for the past 
10 years, everybody in publishing has been miserable because magazines are disappearing and books are disappearing and publishing is disappearing. And Well, the New Yorker is doing fine, thank you. And in <laughs> part, I think it's because... Um, not just that the re- we have insanely loyal readers, but also we have plenty of young people yeah. who actually are discovering th- what we can offer in terms of giving this filtered distillation of what we go through. And it's true as well with um, with the books that you have... Um, a desire and need for books. Mm. Like everything is migrating. Like if it's on the publishing industry, so much is migrating toward digital yeah. and ebooks. But comics are not really, and children's books are not really. Um, I think parents are realizing that. Um, Frank Musso was one of our authors was saying like you know I don't bring out the iPad at night because yeah. the iPad is a portal into brand new exciting things mm-hmm. of course like that's not what you want to quiet your kid down mm. with but I bring out a book and parents are still going through this experience of their kid wanting the same book read over and over and over and over again and in some ways the digital is good for things where like it's a new fresh hit yeah. of something different every day but books are great for the same old thing mm-hmm. you know so which is very repetition is very important very important yes children, yes yeah. I think that's the you know that's the scaffold on which um, kids understanding that's what this is one of the things that I learned from a teacher um, you know we were saying like we have the misconceived ideas that kids want you know, fantasy and adventure. Actually, hmm. what they're looking for is structure. Hmm. And kids are lineages, and they use stories yeah. as scaffolds for their understanding. And you use, you know, the character in the books that you read are like people that you know, and mm-hmm. then they're like your cast of character in your head. Yeah. And then you're going to meet your landlord, and it's just like somebody from a Balzac story so you you use them as as those um archetypes or yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. um and books are really good at that so i think that for children's books and certainly for comics as well you still need a physical object um and and the, and the form, because it has so many more dimensions than just the visual or just the word. So let me ask you, and, and mm-hmm. we can close with this, um, but, and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, my understanding was um, part of the reason why uh, Ra, you, you stopped, part of the reason why you stopped Ra was because of the kids. Part of it was because you, you felt as though you had accomplished your mission or that um you know the the original mission statement of the anthology being finding a place for these people who didn't necessarily have a place to be published in and now they were being published all over the place you know if 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 the industry is is kind of changing around things that you you've set in motion um you, you don't stop tune books once once the goal is accomplished right i mean this is the goal is not accomplished yeah. but the, no i i I certainly, yeah, but what you're saying is, you know, part of it is that um, uh, before Raw, I was doing like little mail books and stuff, mm-hmm. so um, I was, 
I started in 1978 with raw books and graphics, uh, with raw coming out in July 1980, and um, you know, now dropping born in 87, and then Dash um, born in uh, at the end of 91, and the second volume of Mouse. Yeah, there was a sense of it had been, you know, 12 to 14 years um, of doing raw and I had started working with like Penguin and Pantheon and so on and and moved the office downstairs that there were other publishers uh, at the time you know Chris Oliveros was starting mm-hmm. he's, he's going to celebrate his 25th anniversary wow. um, and the the essential mission of Raw, which is like let's show the world what you know our greatest stuff is. Yeah. We had, I mean, we'd done eight issues of the large ones, three issues of the small one, and then I don't know how many, like five, six, seven, eight, uh, Raw one shots. Um, yeah, there had been an array. Um, there, there wasn't going to be anything that was radically new, mm. um, but I think. With the tune books, it was not just the form and the authors. Like, I published um, comics by Jeffrey Hayes because mm-hmm. um, whose brother was Rory Hayes. Um, and I'd always wanted, Jeffrey had always wanted to do just that. But he had been a, a very successful children's book author, but it didn't allow him to do comics. Mm. He had to illustrate his own. He did the text, and then they would look at the text and say, okay, now you can make the illustration, but the illustration has to illustrate what's in the text, mm. which is op- uh, the opposite of what you do in comics, yeah. where you don't want to repeat the same information twice, yeah. because otherwise why read the yeah. words if they don't pay, you know, play off or pay off? So... Yes, I did publish Jeffrey because he wasn't published anywhere else. I published, um, you know, Anya Rosenstiel's The Silly Lily Book mm. because I loved that, those very simple, like, one panel at a time, the level one comics, and nobody else was doing anything like this. But now I want to do more. <laughs> because I You're guess expanding we, into older, yeah, older readers. Yeah, and yeah, like, in a way... It's not enough. First of all, there's nobody who actually the the specifics that we're mining. Like with our new switch in distribution, which was kind of required for our expansion mm-hmm. into because um, you know the Neil Gaiman book is with Matodi is not just a kids book. I mean, it's a book. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it can be read by kids. Same with Fred, um, and. We're really happy because we are distributed by uh, the same distributor as No Brow mm. and also Enchanted Lion, which mm. is a kid's book, um, uh, also on the same scale as us, like, you know, basically, and Anikoyama oh, also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a great offering and a French publisher of kid's book named Ozu. But it, it's really good. It's solid because it's people who do really pretty books you know beautiful objects I love what Noah Brow does it's, mm-hmm. it's really great stuff and it's very exciting and you know we, we feel like we're part of um, okay 
let's be presumptuous here. We are the avant-garde. We're not <laughs> part of the avant-garde. We are the avant-garde. Yeah. And we are... You're starting young. And, and we... And it's exciting that we are distributed by somebody who distributes independence, and that's all they do. Yeah. Our distributor consortium is specifically it's a unit of proceeds, but it is to distribute independent publishers. So the other stuff they do is like poetry presses in mm. Iowa and, yeah. um, you know, um, uh, oddball small presses. But I love that because I feel that. We as a David and the Goliath is paralyzed by its scale. So the Goliath mm-hmm. is Venomous slash penguin. Yeah. You know, and they can't being that big, they may have like however many imprints they have, but they almost um structurally can't blaze new paths because sure. they would have to convince every time they want to make a move yeah. they would have to discuss it among 250 people and they can't make something that looks like this I mean, they well they can't make anything <laughs> like you know when I had Neil here like um, you're saying how come you can do this and like you know other publishers yeah. like they can't think that way because they don't ha- because they have you know a marketing department and they have um a design department mm. and however many people that is. Focus and they groups. And an editorial department and they have like salespeople and yeah. they have this and they have that. Like it's backbreaking yeah. because I have Sasha who does a production, Ihu was our designer and also like runs the office. Yeah. Kimberly who does all of the educational outreach and the promotion and the marketing and one other part-timer and my um, assistant, Mina, who helps me. I mean, you know, it's... it's Fewer than 10 people. What? Fewer, oh, yeah. fewer than 10, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, like nowhere near yeah. 10 people. <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody is more or less like uh, part-time on a miserable salary and <laughs> having to make ends meet in some other ways. Iru runs her own business. Um, no, it's it's all like... It's insane. It takes place out of my living room yeah. and um, uh, which saves, you know, rent. I don't draw a salary from mm. um, from tunes. So it's, it's not quite viable. But on the other <laughs> hand, it's incredibly nimble. Yeah. You know, we couldn't spin it off as a real business. Um, but it allows us to, like, you know... I think it was this morning where I said to uh, Ihu and Sasha and Kimberly, I said, like, oh, how about we do a Spanish edition of this? And mm-hmm. said, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So now, okay, yeah. we do that. But, this, you know, there's no – this is something that goes to the printer in two weeks. But, but, but like, but, but I guess it is similar to Raw in that, you know, since it's not viable, since this isn't where – obviously this isn't where you're, you're making your money, as, as soon as – you don't have the passion for it, you know, as soon as you're not in love with it anymore, as soon as, you know, you don't want to come home from a full day at the New Yorker and come here and work here, then there's not a lot of point to carry on. The kids. The kids. Okay, fair enough. The, no, the kids. I mean, the, yeah. the, the thing, all of this, yeah. and, and that one is so rewarding. Yeah. I mean, I yes, there is something that is hard to beat about holding a book that Mm -hmm. you sent to the printer in your hand and turning the page and the smell of ink and those still smell because we just got them (laughs) 
um, and the tactile like petting this, mm-hmm. I'm I still get really yeah um, high on <laughs> uh, just the powers that you have as a publisher. You conceive of something, yeah. Um, you know, like this is uh, so dummies, and I have more in my backpack mm-hmm. for books. Um, we'll be we'll piles be doing of galleries and yeah. graphics edition oh, wow. of the Little Nemo. Yeah, uh, you've seen the Little Nemo. Yeah, yeah. Locust Moon. Yeah, yeah. It's gorgeous. Tune, That's great. We're doing a tune graphic yeah. edition. Um, That's incredible. So that we get it for kids. Yeah. We're doing another book with this. Um, I was talking to Niels this morning about um, another book we're working yeah. on, another book with him. We're doing another book with this guy. It's it's really, um, I think, you know, to me, Annie Koyama is a real inspiration yeah, because yeah. the way she came to publishing is facing death, literally. Yeah, she's a documentary filmmaker. Yeah, and she got this, I'm sure you know this, yeah. but she got this sentence of like, um, uh, may not be able to delude herself into that we are immortals, that yeah. she may have to face this. So like, what could I want to do with, mm-hmm. you know, the little time that I've left? And yeah, it makes me realize like, I am so lucky because mm-hmm. I get to do what I love, you know, um, and still now. And yeah. I love my job at The New Yorker, and I think it's f- fantastically lucky. First of all, I get to work with the greatest artists uh, born none, and also respond to situations as they happen, mm. uh, whether it's like, you know, the marathon bombing in yeah. Boston or the situation in Ferguson or whatever. This week. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a lot has happened this week. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I also like the autonomy, you know, yeah. being able to like not have to coordinate with, um, you know, so many people. But then on top of it all, then we get the books in the hands of kids because we do an enormous amount. Like we just started a new drive with Donors Choose, which mm-hmm. is an organization where teachers can actually raise funds for things that they bring into the classroom. And they love our books, so we package them into like an offer where we basically sponsor half of it and we and they they um, got subsidize the and they get the entire collection mm-hmm. into the classroom mm-hmm. and then the kids follow we had um a, um, a graduate uh educator who did uh a thirty lesson a plan for comics um, on the ha- for a teacher who doesn't necessarily know anything about comics mm. to take second graders through yeah. analyzing comics and the balloons and the panels and the characters and the setting mm. and it culminates at the end with them making their own book and they have like doodle notebooks and whatever and each kid gets to make their own story and their own book I mean that I can't even begin to tell you <laughs> how exciting that is, yeah. and we we 
it's backbreaking in terms of uh, we'll be at the ALA Midwinter, which is the American Library Association. I'm doing a four-hour seminar mm. <laughs> with Ivan Brunetti and Lily Carré, where we're explaining to teachers and librarians how they can use comics in the classroom yeah. with young kids, you know, with very young kids. Because, again, it's deceptive. It's like, oh, yeah, that's going to be fun. Yeah, yeah but... There's yeah. a lot that they have to learn. Yeah. Um, just, At least you've got Ivan Brunetti and Lily Correa on your side. Now, I, I right? know. <laughs> it's I a know. pretty good pair. Isn't that great? <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, doing uh, a panel with Jin Yang and mm. with Jeff Smith also. Yeah. Um, and it's very popular for those librarians, and we also do them for teachers because in that field, we are not only hot, but we are far more interesting than the other stuff that they have to sit through. They have to sit through like seven hours yeah. about the common core and whatever. But we do all this. Like we, you know, we're not judgmental. Anything that is needed. So we do common core guides for every one of mm. our books because that is a standard that's being used. So it's not useful for us to say like, oh, that's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And actually there's ways to use it in which it's actually lit crit for the lower mm. grades where they do exactly the same thing, like ask questions yeah. about like, you know, why did the author make this choice? Yeah. So our, if you have a chance, take a look at our uh, guide for the Hansel and Gretel. Okay. It's it's such great reading. It's close reading of a text, um, and it makes you want to read the book again yeah. and look at the pictures again. And for me, even the books that the fact that when we're making the books, like okay, yes, it's the story of Orpheus, mm -hmm. but then we do indexes mm. um, where we have to like research yeah. all of the stories in this one we do a lot of visual research about other fantasy uh, I've been learning a lot <laughs> <laughs> um, about the sources of the yeah. fantasy for the uh, artist yeah. and for the author um, yeah. this is a book written by our daughter Nadja uh, was done already some science comics for us and done by mm -hmm. drawn by uh, Sergio Garcia was um, one of the most interesting experimental cartoonists yeah. in Europe. Um, he's done stuff with Louis Trondheim, and that we also did a lot of research oh, wow. on the subway. Yeah. Um, and actually. I'm not finding the end of this. Every time we do a book, I just this morning went over with um, Ihu and Sasha and Kimberly. Um, we already have our plan slot for 2015, 2016, hmm. and 2017. <laughs> so <laughs> we have about 30... More than 30 books in the works. So much for being nimble when <laughs> you've got it <laughs> planned out through 2017. <laughs>
There you go. That was Francois Smouly, the founder of Toon Books, co-founder of the legendary comics anthology Raw, the art director of The New Yorker. Maybe maybe not necessarily in that order, but a very, very busy person nonetheless. So I'm really glad we had the opportunity to do that. I think that right uh, right after we finished the, the interview, she, she more or less basically had to start packing and then jump on a plane to, to do her holiday travel. So um, happy we were able to squeeze that in. Also been a, a pretty pretty busy holiday season for, for the company as well. Uh, they just had quite arguably their, their biggest book to date come out um, like a, a month or so ago. So it's out now for the holidays. It's uh, it, a Hans and Gretel adaptation by Neil Gaiman. Really beautiful book. Probably the company's most ambitious book as well. Uh, also, also sort of... Um, you know, it kind of marks a new direction for for Toon Book. So, for those of you who aren't super familiar with the publishing company, uh, which is probably a lot of the people who don't exist in the overlapping Venn diagram between comics fans and and folks with young kids, uh, they're they're doing some some really awesome books over there for for young and, and beginning readers, using in a lot of cases some some pretty well established comic book artists. So, people like Art Spiegelman, uh, Jeff Smith. Uh, Renee French, I'm a huge fan of uh, Dean Haspiel, Eleanor, Eleanor Davis, folks, uh, Jay Lynch, people like that uh, are making books for the company for for young readers. Um, and you know, I, I think it's a really, really terrific, ambitious pro- project. Uh, as I, as I mentioned during the interview, that was a, a large part of how how I learned to read. Uh, we didn't really have. You know, back in back in my day, uh, we didn't really have resources like Tune Books, so I. I not learn to read, but uh, I, I guess I, I learned to really sort of become a reader, uh, reading a lot of uh, X-Men comics and things like that, and I'm pretty sure that that I'm not alone. So they're doing some really fantastic stuff over there. Thanks so much to her for taking the time out of her very busy schedule to meet with me. Uh, thanks to to Jeff Newalt for setting this thing up. Uh, thanks to Brian, as always, for editing this, uh, this thing together. Thanks to Mark and everybody else at the Boing Boing Podcast Network for uh, putting us up over there and, and putting up with us over there. If you like this show, a lot of other fantastic shows over the Boing Boing Podcast Network. You can check those out over at boingboing.net. You can check them out over at iTunes. And while you're at iTunes, you know, take the why not take the opportunity to rate the show as well. Uh, we have an email address. Nothing new, but you can contest, can uh, contact us that way. It's roilcast at gmail.com if you have any feedback or anything else. Um, the Tumblr is roilcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and Arguably the best place to to find all the new episodes of RIYL. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up. We got uh, I'm not sure which one I'm, I'm putting up next week, but I'm sure it'll be fantastic. And I've already got uh, plenty of episodes recorded that will take us well into the new year. So uh, so stay tuned for those. And thanks uh, thanks as always to everybody for listening. We will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.